Go ahead and open your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. Matthew chapter 22, as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, a new chapter this morning, starting at verse 1. Matthew says, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again, speaking, he's speaking of, uh, to the Jewish religious leaders, spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their uh, ways one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So on Sunday mornings, we've been engaged in this wonderful study through the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, I say that, I'm not saying it's been wonderful because I've been leading this study. I say it's been wonderful because, uh, you know, the revelation of our Savior that we see in the Word of God. You know, uh, because... In the word of God, as we study the word of God, we see the mind of God and we see the heart of God. And it's been revealed to us through our study in the gospel of Matthew. You know, I'm so thankful for the word of God, for the Bible that God's so graciously given us that we might know him. You know, and it's through the study of the Bible that we see God's plan for our lives and that plan on out into eternity an eternity spent with him, you know, and I do very much pray for us as a body that God would use these verses that we're looking at today to cause us to become more like Jesus, that God would use them in our lives to shape us and fashion us, uh, fashion our lives and fashion our thinking into those, you know, that which he wants for us, you know, the way he wants us to live, the way he wants us to think, the way he wants us to act so that we can more accurately represent and reflect our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we did a review of Matthew 21. You know, we reviewed the triumphal entry. We reviewed cleansing of the temple and, and uh, the cursing of the fig tree. And then we finished up the chapter looking at the religious leaders. They came to Jesus asking in Matthew 21, 23, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them saying, uh, found in Matthew 21, 24 and 25, said, I also will ask you one thing, which if I tell you, I, like, uh, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? So Jesus was willing to answer their question if they were willing to declare their thoughts regarding the ministry of John the Baptist. Where was it from? But the religious leaders refused to answer him. So Jesus basically said, okay, then, since, you know, you refuse to answer my question, I'm under no obligation to ask, answer your question. But then Jesus goes on to answer their question, you know, um, in, not directly, as it were, but he answers them uh, indirectly through two parables that brings Matthew 21 to a close. And it was a parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked vine dresser. Now, the entirety of Matthew 22 
is, you know, a continuation of this ongoing conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders that started in Matthew 21. You know, it's unfortunate that there's a break there. But in the parable that we're looking at this morning, the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus gives the religious leaders an illustration regarding how God views the rejection of his invitation to be saved. His invitation to one day find ourselves in his presence, enjoying his glory in heaven forever. In verse 1, we read, Then Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, and, and we'll take a, a short break right there. You know, just by way of reminder, the use of parables, it was a method that Jesus used to teach the people to convey a spiritual truth to them. The word parable literally means to throw alongside. So Jesus would use a parable. He would take something that was very, very familiar to the people, you know, that he was speaking to, that he was teaching. And he would take that, par that, that familiar thing and throw it alongside a spiritual truth, some revelation of God that the people that were less familiar with. And Jesus would do this to help them to understand this spiritual truth or this concept that he's trying to teach them at the time. So he speaks to them in parables. Verse 2, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So in this parable, Jesus uses the imagery of a wedding of a king's son to illustrate to the religious leaders the important spiritual truth he wants to convey to them. Now, a wedding in those days was a really big deal, right? It's a big deal for the most part in our days. I mean, people look forward to it. You can talk to Jay and Tammy. They just uh, had a wedding of their daughter. Uh, it, it was a big deal. But in these days, in Jesus's days, it was everything a wedding is to us times like a thousand. It's a really, really big deal. You know, a Jewish, a Jewish wedding went on for seven days. And it meant that they were going to party and they were going to eat for a full seven days. So again, it was just a really, really big deal, a really big event. If somebody in your village was going to uh, be getting married, you would mark your calendar. And you would begin to count down the months and the weeks and the days until that joyous event took place. And we also have to remember that there was no Instagram in those days. Yeah, Doug here. Yeah, no Instagram where you could turn and look at what a hundred different brides look like for their wedding day. There was no YouTube. There was no Facebook where, you know, you could see wedding videos and receptions posted where you could get, you know, an idea of what everybody else was doing. So when someone in your village got married, you know, it was a really big deal because it just didn't happen every day, right? So now to have a king host a wedding for his son, that was, you know, a gigantic deal. That was a next level deal, you know? And then to have an invitation to attend the wedding and the wedding feast, the feast that would follow, you know, that would be off the charts exciting. We just have to kind of let our minds think through these things and, and uh, you know, what it would be like. Let our imaginations wander. I mean, it would, it would be something, if you can imagine, it would be something like having an invitation to a royal wedding in London or Monaco. I mean, it's a big deal. It would be a great privilege. You know, you would do whatever it would take. You know, you would make sure your schedule was clear so that you would be free to attend that wedding. So here's a king who loves his son very, very much, and he wants this wedding ceremony and the reception to follow to just be this tremendous blessing to his son on his wedding day. And the king is so excited about, you know, seeing his son get married. He can hardly contain himself. 
He wants to, you know, share this joyous occasion. He wants to bid others to come so they can take part in this happy event with him. So he sends out these invitations. And in the last part of verse 3, we read of the response of those people that were invited. It says that they were not willing to come. They just flat out refused to come to the wedding. In verse 4, it says, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle uh, are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. So with this second wave of servants going out, the king instructs them to tell the invitees what's actually going to be on the menu for the wedding feast. Isn't it just the worst? And, and maybe this is just a reflection of my own dark heart. I don't know. But isn't it just the worst when you're invited to go to a wedding? You know, you go, you're excited, you dress up, you bring an expensive gift. And after the wedding ceremony, you know, you go to what you, you know, anticipate is going to be a really nice reception. And then... When you get there, you find out the only thing that you get to eat is like a handful of peanuts. I mean, isn't it just the worst? Again, maybe that's just my dark heart. Whatever the case is, um, that's not this wedding. This wedding, there's beef. There's lots of beef. I mean, if you're a beef lover, there's prime rib, there's filet mignon, there's New York, there's tri-tip, there's porterhouse steaks, all of which are cooked to perfection the best cuts of meat, medium rare. And if you're not a beef eater, you know, there was probably a vegetarian option for you, some celery or something like that. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't think there's a lot of vegetarians uh, there in those days, but maybe. Either way, it was a feast literally set, prepared, made for a king. And the king uh, sends his servants out to tell his guests, look, you know, Everything is ready. This is what I've prepared. This is what the menu is going to be. Here's the wedding feast all ready for you. You know, I love my son. Now I urge you, come for all things are ready. Come to the wedding. And again, we see the response of those who were invited. Verse five, but they made light of it and went their ways. One to his uh, own farm and another to his business. And I think right here, it's really important to just, you know, a little bit of a side note, right? Something that, that is here that is worth seeing is that some of the things that kept some of the guests away from the wedding feast, they weren't actually necessarily bad things, right? Jesus says one went to his farm, another went to his business. You know, they weren't engaged in some gross, immoral sin, you know, they went off to their farms. They went off to their businesses. You know, they're providing for their family. And I think one of the things that we need to see in that is this. You know what? We can get so busy. We can just be so busy with things of this life that we can overlook, even forget, and miss eternal things. You know, we can get... Uh, we can become so preoccupied with the things that are right in front of us, the things that are seen, that we can lose sight of those things that are unseen. You know, we can get so wrapped up in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, watching the news on TV, listening to what the talking heads have to say, reacting to what we hear come over the airwaves, and we fail to hear the voice of Christ speaking to our hearts. You know, so many times the second best shuts out the best. Good things uh, in our day can often crowd out the best things of eternity. And we need to be careful of that. We can get so caught up in making a living today, you know, that we fail to recognize that Jesus is wanting to prepare us for eternity. Well, Again, we see the response of those who are invited, verse 5 and 6 says, but they made light of it, went their ways, went to his uh, own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Some of those who were invited 
made light of the invitation. You know, others just casually went about their business ignoring the invitation as if it was, you know, of no importance. And what's communicated to the king by their actions is that the king and his son is of no concern to them. Their lives, their business, right? The things that they were doing, that was more important to them, right? Than honoring the king and his son. And in that day and age, their reaction to the king's invitation would have been unbelievable. It would have just been an unimaginable, huge insult. I mean, it might have been better that you just go up to the king and slap him in the face and then spit on him. I mean, who would do that? Their actions, their response would have been just this tremendous offense to the king and to the son whom he dearly loves. In verse 6, it says, And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So just what do you think it means, right? Uh, well, you know, I should say this. Right before, you know, you think it, it just couldn't get any worse. And <laughs> it gets worse. You know, the rest of those that were invited to the wedding, they grab the servants, they grab them, uh, the servants of the king, and they begin to treat them spitefully. You know, what do you think that means, to be, treating, to be treated spitefully? Maybe it means they ridiculed the, the servants of the king. Maybe it means they made fun of them. They said terrible things behind their backs, right? Maybe they tried to embarrass them in front of friends or, or whatever the case may be. They treated them with contempt for daring to deliver the king's invitation uh, to them, encouraging them to come to the wedding. Maybe it means that they were roughed up physically. Whatever it means, they were treated spitefully and even some were killed. Verse 7, but when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up those cities. In this verse, we see the king execute, you know, a very righteous judgment on those who reject his invitation and spitefully mistreated and killed his servants, right? And the real tragedy behind this verse is not so much that these people that rejected the invitation to the wedding were punished, but that they missed the opportunity to partake of the joy associated with the wedding. And you know what? In the same uh, way, it's true today for people that refuse the invitation to Christ. There is a judgment that they will have to face, you know, and they'll have to explain why they rejected the free gift of salvation, for which there is no legitimate reason to reject. But on that day, the regret and pain will come, not only from the judgment, the just judgment that's going to be meted out to them for rejecting Christ, but more because of the realization of the precious things they've missed out upon. That's the tragedy. In verse 8, it says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Despite all the resistance, all the rejection of those invited to the wedding, the king is determined to have this wedding celebration go on as planned. Right, In spite of the insulting refusals of those first invitees, he tells his servants to go out into the highways and invite anyone and everyone they come across to invite them to come and celebrate with the king, the wedding of the king's son, and then attend the reception that follows. In verse 10, it says, So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. The invitation to the wedding is one of pure grace. It's nothing but grace, right? Those who were gathered into the wedding hall from the highways, they didn't deserve to be there, right? And by the way, guess what? If you don't know, Truckee happens to be along those highways, right? You know, and, the, and none of us deserve the invitation to the wedding feast. 
right? We are those that are described as the bad and the good. And just so none of us thinks more highly of ourselves than we ought to, you know, let me tell you, each of us are worse than we think. That's just the truth. Now, this group of people, they didn't need to be sold on how wonderful this invitation uh, to attend the celebration was. Uh, just like us, they realized that they didn't deserve to be invited, but they made up their minds that they were going to take a full advantage of the invitation that they had received. They knew a good thing when they heard it. So they wholeheartedly and without delay, they, they respond to the king. They take the king up on his invitation. And then verse 11 says, but when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. As the king, you know, comes into the wedding hall to mingle with his guests, which would be a great blessing for the king, you know, to, not to mention it would be a great blessing for the guests of the king just to be in the presence of the king. What a blessing that would be. But as the king comes into the wedding hall, he immediately spots one guest not wearing a wedding garment. And it says in verse 12, So I said to them, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king confronts this man and asks him how he was able to come into the wedding feast without a wedding garment. And the man was speechless, right? He was completely unable to reply. He had no explanation. He had no excuses. In verse 13, the, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the king orders that this man be forcibly removed from the wedding celebration. He was to be removed from the celebration. He was to be removed from the joy-filled occasion. He was to be removed from all the pleasures associated with this wedding feast. And he was to be taken to a place where there was no joy, where there was no light, where there was no rejoicing, no celebration, just darkness. And when it speaks of weeping, it, it speaks of a place of mental anguish and regret. And when it speaks of gnashing of teeth, it's speaking of physical pain and suffering. And we can't forget, don't forget, the circumstances, the events of this parable is something that every single one of those people that hear Jesus give this parable, they would recognize, right? They would be completely and totally familiar and understand the scenario that Jesus is putting forth. Now, the truth behind the parable that Jesus is seeking to communicate to the religious leaders who came to him with the question regarding his authority, you know, who were openly rejecting him as the son of God, the truth behind the parable is this. The king in the parable is God the Father. And he is so unbelievably wealthy that he can invite the whole world without limit in terms of uh, the number of guests, he can invite the whole world to the wedding of his son and foot the bill for the whole event. And it wouldn't even begin to put a dent in his wallet. The, the whole world could enter into his kingdom and he could support them and take care of them. And uh, not just for the seven days, which was the traditional uh, Jewish wedding, but for all eternity. And the whole bill for our sustenance would be footed by the king. It costs us nothing. Now the king in the parable represents Jesus. And the wedding feast of the son represents salvation. And our entrance into heaven is based strictly upon our willingness to accept God's invitation to be saved. By virtue of placing our faith in Jesus Salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ the Son. Now, this parable likens the invitation of God to be saved to a joyous wedding, right? The invitation 
to be saved is an invitation to joy. To think of Christianity as some sad, boring, dark, and gloomy existence, right, is to completely misunderstand the nature of God and his invitation. It's joy that he's inviting us to. And it's joy that a person misses out if they refuse the invitation. The Bible teaches us that one day, all those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior are going to partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? The marriage supper of Jesus, which will be in heaven. And Revelation 19.9 says it this way. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or blessed are, are those that are, again, called to the marriage supper of Jesus in heaven, right? The invitation in the parable to attend the wedding and the feast that follows represents the gospel. That's the invitation. The gospel is God's invitation going out to all people to be saved and to enter into his kingdom. Now, the servants in the parable are those who are sent out to deliver God's invitation of salvation to the entire world. And you want to notice that there were sent out, that these servants were sent out in three waves. The first wave of messengers in verse 3, you know, represents the disciples, right? They were sent out to preach the gospel during Jesus' three-and-a-half-year public ministry. And they were sent out specifically to the Jews. And of those servants, it would include Johnny the Beer, or, you know, the way you might say John the Baptist. It includes the boys, the 12 disciples. You'll remember at one time Jesus sent out 70 disciples, um, you know, to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that first wave of preaching, the preaching of, of John the Baptist, the preaching of the 12, the preaching of the 70, and even the preaching of Jesus himself was pretty much met with indifference. It was pretty much ignored by the general population of the Jews. And then the second wave of messengers that uh, are sent out, you know, or represented those in verses 4 through 7, right? And this refers to the proclamation of the gospel during the time uh, that's recorded in the book of Acts, right? From the time of Jesus' death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven, all the way up to where the city of Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, which, by the way, is a fulfillment of verse 7 in this parable, right? During that period of time, the message of the gospel was largely treated with contempt. Christians during that time were very often murdered in an attempt to silence them and to silence the message that they brought. Stephen was one of those disciples, one of those servants of Christ that was murdered. James, the brother of John, also one of those disciples that was murdered. All but one of the disciples would die a violent death because of their faithfulness to preach the gospel and take that invitation uh, of the king out into the world. And they were killed by Jew and Gentile alike. And then the third group of messengers sent out by the king, verses 8 through 10, they, they, refer, uh, they rep are represented by us in our time right? Extending all the way to the time of Jesus when he comes again and he sets up his kingdom here on earth. It's during this time the gospel is to be shared by us with anyone and everyone, both good and bad. We're not to look at people and ask them, uh, you know, hey, before I share the gospel with you, are you good or are you bad? You know what? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. That's not what we're supposed to be concerned with, right? We're not to concern ourselves with trivial things, you know, like how tall they are or how small they are, how old they are or how young they are, you know? Um, which political party do you belong to? You know, we're not even to make a judgment whether or not they'll receive the gospel, right? We're not to, to, to think about those kinds of things, before we share the gospel, we're called to sow 
the seeds of the gospel. We're called to boldly proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel with anyone and everyone we come into contact with. Now, those who are not willing to accept the king's invitation in the parable represents the general attitude of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day and also uh, the general uh, population of the nation of Israel in those days, right? The gospel went out to the Jew first and then the Greek, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And the Jews met the invitation to be, to be saved with a firm and resolute unwillingness to receive God's invitation during Jesus' public ministry. They made light of it, as mentioned in verse 5. They neglected it. They ignored it. You know, uh, I have a farm to attend to. I have a business to focus on. Those things are more important to, to them than their own soul. And the Apostle John, he said it this way, John 1.11, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, the great multitude of anyone and everyone, you know, the bad and the good that ultimately fills the king's uh, palace represents the great number of sinners, commoners, you know, um, outcasts, Gentiles who have happily responded to the gospel. You know, those who have joyfully responded to the gospel down through the ages, uh, again, through our time and on into you know, the time of Christ's return. Now, let's take, you know, as we kind of are wrapping things up, let's kind of look now at some lessons that this parable uh, is intended to teach us. And the first lesson this parable teaches us, it teaches us of the great love that the Father has for His Son. It's the great love that God has for Jesus. God loves His Son. He's thrilled to be planning this wedding celebration for his son and that, that he might be joined to his bride, the bride of Christ. God is thrilled to provide this, you know, incredible feast that would bless the heart of his son, you know, that would honor his son, a feast that would be worthy of the son, you know, uh, worthy of the love and honor the father has for the son. And again, we can't forget, it's at this very minute, even as Jesus is delivering this parable, that the Jewish leaders are actively plotting to kill Jesus. They're actively plotting his death. And Jesus tells them this parable because they need to know that they're plotting the death of the son who is greatly beloved of the Father. Secondly, this parable gives us a valuable insight into God's heart and his offer of salvation to each of us. You know, it's likened to a king who's giving a wedding feast for his son. And as you read in the early part of the parable, you see that the king is so excited, so excited to spread the news and invite the guests into his home. Right? God's so excited and overjoyed about this offer of salvation. God's invitation to us is to be saved and one day enjoy being in his presence, in his kingdom. I mean, that's a priceless invitation. I mean, it's just incredible when you take the time just to think about it. You know, it's an invitation that every single person without exception, should readily receive. You know, and then allow it to provoke a sense of awe in their hearts, a sense of privilege in everyone's heart who's willing to respond to that invitation. I mean, it's an unbelievable honor to be invited to the wedding of the king's son how much more to receive an invitation from God Almighty to spend eternity in his home, feasting and celebrating with him forever. I mean, it's like, bring it on. 
Thirdly, the parable reveals to us the eagerness of God for us to accept his invitation so that he might share the glories of heaven with us, right? Even the thought of it should leave us in jaw-dropping amazement, right? And to me, it's, it's kind of sad in the early part of the parable as you read about the king, and, and we can't forget, right? We can't forget. It's Jesus who's painting this picture for us of his own heavenly father, right? But it's kind of sad to see that this king wants nothing more than just to bless the son and to bless his people. Everything about this king, everything about his motives, you know, they're just and they're pure. His actions are motivated by love. But before the parable is over, his very heart and the offer of salvation is rejected. And in rejecting the king's invitation, they trample underfoot, uh, under their feet, the very heart of the king, trampled underfoot by those whom he loves and desires to bless. You know, I, I don't think we can really understand what man's refusal of God's invitation uh, of salvation does to the heart of God. You know, but I, I know I never want to be guilty of needlessly breaking his heart. Fourthly, this parable also teaches us that from heaven's perspective, refusing the invitation of salvation is a very great insult to God. You know, it's an insult to God Almighty. It's an insult to the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and earth. By refusing to come, the guests have deliberately and publicly insulted the dignity of the king who counted on their attendance and graciously prepares this wonderful feast for them. And we need to realize, right, that it's an even greater insult to refuse so great a salvation that God has offered to each one of us at a tremendous personal expense to himself. Right? The writer to the book of Hebrews speaks to this point with great strength. Hebrews 10, 28 through 31. He says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him, speaking of God the Father, who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, fifthly, this parable teaches us that we need to be careful not to dismiss this offer of salvation the way that the people did in the parable. You know, it would seem that God keeps track of how people refuse him and for what reason they refuse him. Jesus mentions that the people were unwilling to come, verse 4. They made light of the invitation, verse 5. They esteem their businesses and farms, their occupation and material things as more important than their own souls, verse 5. As if accepting the invitation of God to be saved and somehow, you know, is going to inhibit or retard their advancement in life, right? They're, they're also, they also respond by being violently opposed to the invitation. It's almost always the case that those who respond in violence are actually involved in some other religious system, right? Some other religious system that Jesus and the, the gospel message threatens the very foundations of. You know, Jesus and that gospel message threatens them in a wonderful way to set those people free that are held in bondage to that religious system. And those people who are invested in that religious system don't want that to happen, so they respond in violence. The sixth thing this parable teaches us, one of the most beautiful lessons 
uh, that we can learn from this parable is that anyone and everyone can be saved. As a result, uh, as well as teaching us that anyone and everyone must be saved. Right? It doesn't matter if you're bad or good. Right? You can be saved and you must be saved. Those who are bad receive from this parable you know, comfort and encouragement that they're not disqualified uh, for salvation. God is willing to forgive and save anyone and everyone, no matter what their past looks like. Man, that's good news. No one is beyond the reach of God's uh, amazing grace and power to save. And to those who are good, well, your goodness in this life is just not enough right? It's not enough to be better than those that are bad. To those who are good, this parable teaches us that you can't afford to reject his invitation because uh, you too are in desperate need of salvation, right? No one is so bad they can't be saved. No one is so good that they don't need to be saved. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The entire population of the world is in need of salvation and in need of a savior. Well, before we finish, we want to ask ourselves, what does verses 11 through 13 represent? What's going on with this guy that came to the wedding feast without a wedding garment? What's that all about? Well, actually, what's happening here is a second insult directed towards God it's very common, uh, you know, on the part of mankind. The king comes into the wedding hall to mingle with his guests, and the king spots one guy not wearing uh, a wedding garment. And that one guy, he would be easy to spot because he was the only one in the crowd without a wedding garment, right? Here's this huge crowd, right? This huge gathering of people, and one man stands out based on one thing. He's not properly attired. So the king goes up to him and asks him a very simple question in verse 12. And that is, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? You know, what, happens in, what happened in those days, when the king hosted a royal wedding, he would provide uh, all the guests with a robe. And it was so that there would be kind of, you know, like this... Uh, uniformed appearance of the people so that the king would be sure that everyone looked good. They, they looked, uh, you know, suitable. The king sent out uh, his servants into the highways and byways and invited everyone and anyone, good people and bad, rich people and poor, educated and uneducated. Just invite everyone you run into was the instruction of the, the king to the servants, and that's what they did, just so that the wedding hall would be filled. And a lot of people, um, you know, in those days, they couldn't afford the clothing that would make them look good, that would make them look presentable before a king who's throwing this huge celebration. So the king would provide wedding garments to all of his guests, right, so that they would be uh, well-dressed, so that everyone... Uh, attending the feast would be looking nice before the king. And what we notice in this parable is this man is alone in his rebellion. He has clearly refused to accept the king's garments and he's inappropriately dressed for the occasion. He's in the wedding hall. He's inappropriately uh, clothed by his own choice and the king holds him responsible for it. Now, this man without a wedding garment represents a very interesting group of people, right? He wants to be at the feast, right? He wants to be part of the celebration, you know, but he doesn't like the king's terms in regards to what's required to enter into the celebration. He's the kind of person who wants to go to heaven, you know, when he dies. He wholeheartedly believes that there's a heaven. You know, he believes God. You know, that's not even in question for this guy. He believes there's a God. 
But he's the kind of guy that doesn't like God's terms for entering into heaven. He doesn't like being called a sinner. He doesn't like the idea of needing to be saved to get into heaven. You know, he doesn't like the idea that salvation is offered as a free gift. You know, he wants salvation to be something that he can work for, something that he can earn, you know, something that he can achieve with his good works. You know, these type of people, they don't like the fact that there's only one way to get into heaven. They don't like the fact that that one way is a narrow way. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. This kind of person, this guy is convinced that he can get into heaven on his own terms, clothed in his own righteousness. And in his mind, that should be plenty good enough for God. Well, you know what this parable teaches us? What we see in this parable is that this kind of person is a victim of self-deception. He's completely self-deceived as the king's speech reveals. He says, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? How could you think that you could come into my son's wedding without being properly clothed? How could you think that someone like you could come into the perfect holiness of heaven without being saved. What sense of arrogance, pride, self-importance has blinded you? Have you come into my very home to insult me on the day of my son's wedding? And the man was speechless. He was without excuse, and he knew it. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, Something like, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a thing or two to tell God. You know, I mean, I don't know. It kind of makes me laugh. It makes me sad too. Because you know what? They actually have no idea. They have no concept of all of the holiness of God and what it will be like to stand before him. You know, they, they won't tell him anything. You know, the truth be told you know, they'll shake uncontrollably and, and hope that they can just control their bowel and bladder function. You know, uh, I don't mean to be crude, but that's, that's the uncontrollable response of tremendous fear. You just, right there. Well, words can't begin to describe how awesome it will be for us to stand before God saved, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and words can't describe how fearful it will be to stand before God unsaved. The Bible teaches that when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, their sins are forgiven. But that's not the only thing that happens, right? When we're saved, God forgives us of our sins, but then he takes the righteousness of Christ the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. And he puts that, places it in our account. So for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness, but he sees the perfect sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness which is likened to a wedding garment in this parable because that wedding garment covers everything head to toe. It's what the prophet Isaiah spoke of 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah said, Isaiah 61.10, speaking of the righteousness as a robe, he said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has clothed me with the robe of of righteousness. Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, speaking of the Father, made him, speaking of Jesus Christ the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. By placing our faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness is accredited to our count. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said Romans 4.5, 
But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So this man, this man, he thinks he can get into heaven based on his own good works. He doesn't need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't believe he needs to be saved like everyone else. He thinks he's an exception to the rule. He's different. Somehow he's, you know, extraordinary. He's outside of, you know, everybody else. He doesn't need a savior. And we need to remember that Jesus is speaking this parable to a group of very, very religious people. Right? He's talking with the Jewish leaders who were convinced that they were going to get into heaven based on their own works. Right? On the basis of meticulously keeping the law in every single detail. They're going to do it. And Jesus is trying to get through to them. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. And those that try to take that route to heaven, Jesus is warning them that one day there's going to be a big surprise waiting for you. You're going to be surprised. The person who attempts to enter into heaven based on their good works is ignorant of one great fact. And that is the standard for entry into heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ is nothing less than perfection. Perfect righteousness. No slip-ups. And the only people who are trying to work their way to heaven, they either don't know or they don't believe that's the standard. The person that understands that fact, however, understands that they're disqualified from entering into heaven based on their own efforts. It's that person that the Holy Spirit comes to takes them by the hand and introduces them to Jesus so they might be saved, so they can surrender their life to Christ, place their faith in Jesus as their Savior. And then they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ as his righteousness is accredited to their account. You know, it doesn't matter how good uh, we are. It doesn't matter how religious we are. We all need to be born again and clothed in Christ's righteousness if we're to be saved. When the king ordered the, men to be, the man to be forcibly removed, what he was saying is, take this man out of this room. Take him to a place where the joy, the love, the celebration of this feast, which is all about my son, Take them to a place where none of that will ever penetrate. Where it will never be seen, where it will never be experienced. And that place is, we call it hell. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in verse 14, we see Jesus' closing commentary on all of this. Where he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus' comment on this parable is that many there are many, many, many people who are invited to become Christian. In fact, that invitation goes out to everyone, but there are only a few that are going to accept that invitation. And this parable encourages us and everyone who's not saved to make sure we're among that number. You know, Pastor Chuck, Pastor Chuck started the Calvary Chapel movement. He always spoke of people who would say, how do I know if God has chosen me. And if you're familiar with this, Chuck would say, choose God and you'll find that God has chosen you. But I don't want to choose God, they would say. Well, Chuck would respond, then you're not among those who are chosen. But wait a minute, you know, that's not fair. Well, then choose God and you'll find that you were among those that were chosen. But I don't want to choose God. And they would go round and round about this. You know, the Bible teaches that God's choosing of those who will be saved is based on his foreknowledge. You know, he knows everything ahead of time. He knows who's willing to humble themselves in order to accept the invitation to be saved. He has known 
who those people are from all eternity's past. He knows those that will choose him. And as a result, he has chosen them. God's foreknowledge and his sovereign election never negate man's responsibility. Right? And we see this in verse 3. When people were invited to the wedding, it doesn't say that they could not come. What it says is they would not come. Right? God's election and predestination, along with man's responsibility, it's a mystery. But there's no truth about them that is balanced or biblical that mars one or elevates one over the other. All over the world today, in churches, in the streets, people are sharing the gospel. And there are those who, when they hear about the uh, things of the Lord, when they hear the message of the cross, the forgiveness of sin that's being offered through Jesus Christ, you know what? Uh, their response to that message is just a shrug of the shoulders and, and some kind of response like, you know what, I'm glad that works for you. But I'm pretty busy with my farm. You know, uh, I'm pretty busy with my business. You know, I'm focusing on securing my family's financial future, getting ahead in life. You know, I'm not really interested in any of that right now. Maybe at some point in time, you know, but not right now. And there are other places where the gospel will be shared in the world today where someone will share Christ with another person. You know, they'll share the message of God's love and the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ with another person. And their response will be, you are to never speak to me regarding Jesus again. And if you do, I will literally beat you to death if you violate my wishes regarding this. That's a reality in our world today. And it's in this parable we get a glimpse of how God views the rejection of his invitation to salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And from heaven's perspective, those responses are a terrible and grave insult to a gracious and loving God. This parable is addressed to these religious leaders in the light of their rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah. But make no mistake about it. This parable goes out to, the, to our world today so that we might understand how God sees mankind's rejection of salvation, which is offered to all people. The encouraging takeaway from this parable for us as believers I think is this. From time to time, we will run around, uh, run uh, along into someone who's never heard of God offering them uh, an invitation be, to be saved. Believe it or not, there are people in our country that just don't know that that's a, a reality. They've never heard it before. You know, they've, they've never heard that there is a loving God who desires a relationship with them. But it's the, that it's their sin that's preventing that relationship from occurring, from having a relationship, a, an intimate relationship with a holy God. You know, and upon hearing the message of God's love for them, that Jesus, God's son, was born into this world, born uh, of a virgin, lived a sinless life and laid down his life, dying on the cross, taking their sins, taking my sins, taking your sins, bearing for us the penalty our sins deserved. When these people hear that, they're going to place their faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to place their faith in his sacrifice for us. And they're going to be declared justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what the word means. And they're going to receive his righteousness so that they can come into a right relationship with God the Father. And upon hearing the message of God's love for them, They'll willingly confess their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, receive him as a savior. And it's an important thing that we need to be reminded of. There are people that will receive. I think it's interesting to note 
as we just wrap things up here quickly. I think it's interesting to note before we finish, the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21 is a parable regarding two classes of people. Those that wouldn't do what was requested by the father, but later regretted the decision and ultimately surrendered to the father's will and fulfilled his desire. And those that said they would do the father's will, but then didn't. And the Jewish, leader, uh, Jewish religious leaders, they were part of that second group. Uh, they said they would be obedient to the Father, but ultimately they rejected the Father and his will for them. And then the second parable in Matthew 21 that Jesus told the parable of the wicked vine dresser, uh, in that parable, the wicked vine dressers, who again the Jewish religious leaders understood represented them, were guilty of rejecting and killing the son, the son of the landowner. And again, the Jewish religious leaders understood that Jesus was claiming to be the son of God in that parable, the heir of all things, right? Whom they re were rejecting and planning to kill. And now in this third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus demonstrates that they're not only rejecting the father and the son in this ongoing discourse, but now they're rejecting the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's the job of the Holy Spirit to acquire a bride for the Son, right? They're rejecting the free gift of salvation, and in doing so, they're rejecting the Father. They're rejecting the Son. They're rejecting the Holy Spirit. If you reject one, you reject them all. And there's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And those aren't my words. Those are Jesus's words. You can show people that Jesus emphatically says that. John 14, 6. I am the way, or literally, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know what? If you're here today, if you're watching online, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. And I don't ever say that as a scare tactic. That's just the reality of things, right? No one is guaranteed a tomorrow. Not to mention that the Bible teaches that those who continually reject the Holy Spirit's effort to reveal Jesus to them and their need of him as a savior, those that continually reject the free gift of salvation, there comes a point where, where God just gives them over. He just gives up. He stops trying because their hearts have grown so very hard. And I would say to anybody who hasn't become a Christian yet, why risk going there? Come to Jesus, confess your sins, ask him to come into your life, ask him to be your Lord and Savior, and read your Bible so you can get to know him, and then plug into a solid Bible teaching church, seeking to grow in your walk with him and your knowledge of his grace. For those of us that are believers, I think this parable is intended to remind us of just how precious that invitation is that has been extended to us, the invitation that we've received, right? The invitation to be saved. It's a reminder to us that we need to treat it appropriately, right? We're not to neglect it. We're not to keep it to ourselves, but to be those servants of the king who are obedient to his command to go into the highways and the byways and share Christ with anyone and everyone we meet so that his wedding hall can be filled, right? When was the last time you asked somebody, a waitress in a restaurant, you know, the cashier at a grocery store, the mechanic working on your car, when was the last time you asked them if you could pray for them? Man, I tell you what, you ask people, can I pray for you? They'll, they'll give it to you. They'll tell you about their lives. They'll, they'll do it. When was the last time you said to somebody when you were leaving, hey, Jesus loves you? Do you know that? You know Jesus loves you? I think, no, correction, I know if we'll do that, if we'll step out in faith, God will open up such amazing doors for us to share uh, with people that uh, have never heard about Jesus and he'll use us to lead them to Christ. Telling people about Jesus, asking if they want to pray and receive Jesus as their savior and then hearing them say, yes, 
I want Jesus in my life. Would you pray uh, with me that he would forgive me of my sins? I'm telling you, that's the greatest thing in all of life, right? God using us to lead others to him. Man, nothing compares to that, trust me. You know, my encouragement to us, Calvary Chapel Truckee, is let's be those obedient servants that God can use and work through to usher people into his kingdom that don't know him. You know, I believe the more we share with people, the more God will bring people to us that are ready to say yes to his invitation of grace. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you very much for that invitation that is extended to all of us. And I trust all of us here have received that invitation. Lord, for those that are maybe here, maybe watching online, but that don't know yet if they're saved or haven't received that invitation, Lord, I pray that you even encourage them to pray, to ask for forgiveness of their sins, confess their sins to you, and ask you to come into their life and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. Lord, and write their name in the book of heaven and be saved. Lord, for Calvary Chapel Truckee, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you empower us? Would you anoint us to be those servants that boldly proclaim the gospel, the message of the cross, the forgiveness of sins to all that we meet on the highways and the byways here in Truckee, in this country, and in the world, Lord. Use us for your glory. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.